I want to build something meaningful where all the hard work and the sacrifice and the intellect that goes into solving these problems, that it solves something permanently and not in a way that's that's wasteful. And in that sense, I there are a lot of parallels between like Iraq and uh, failed, you know, venture capital where there's a ton of capital poured into these businesses, like sometimes billions of dollars, look at Webvan or even Living Social here in DC. And people work really hard and then it all goes down to zero. It's not just that you wasted a billion dollars, that you just wasted all these talented people's time. And I resolved that if I ever had the wheel, so to speak, at the strategic level, I would never waste anyone's time and that uh, far from it, I would build something that would make everyone's life better. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout out. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just 2 to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, 
Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Listeners, welcome back to the Business Method Podcast. And our guest today is an Army Ranger who hunted down the Al-Qaeda bomb network during his time in Iraq. He also led a platoon for 15 months in the war, and he was awarded the Bronze Star with Valor for leading his men during a firefight against Al-Qaeda, which saved 20 American lives. But believe it or not, that's not the main reason he's on the podcast today. His name is Blake Hall, and he is the founder and CEO of ID.me, which is a $1.5 billion digital identity verification company, which has grown to employing over a thousand people and credited with eliminating $210 billion in government identity fraud out of the estimated $400 billion to take place during the pandemic. Pretty impressive accolades. I know he's on the podcast today, and let's hop into it with Blake. Blake, how you doing, man? Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show. Can only go downhill from there. <laughs> I I doubt that, man. I, my first question is is like you you have a, a incredible resume, and you know we're interviewing now a hundred people that have built billion dollar companies, and that ranges from people of all different ages. But you don't seem like you're that you're that old. You seem you know pretty youthful. So I've, I got to ask, how old are you? I'm 39. I still have a few oh, more yeah. weeks before I hit the big four zero. So. Uh, Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm over 40. Don't mm-hmm. tell anybody else. So, and it's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it too much. Like it's just another number. <laughs> when is your birthday? The uh, October 25th. Ah, cool. Very good. Yeah. So in your thirties, you should, you should be under like Forbes 40 under 40 for sure. <laughs> like they, I don't know what those guys are doing, but they shoot him an email. I know. I so. know. I'm going to send them this podcast and be like, have you guys seen this guy yet? What's a guy got to do? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right. But well, you know, when you whittle it down to 40, that's an impressive group. So, uh, you know, it's always humbling when you meet somebody that's that successful where it's like, oh, I can see how they got me. That is. And, and, and it begs the question of like, you know, we've interviewed people that are on Forbes, 40 under 40, 30 under 30, probably even 20 under 20. And what do you think that you have, you know, say there's an estimated 200 million entrepreneurs that are out there. What do you think that you have that those that haven't made that list or built companies like you have, have? I would chalk it up to three things. The the first thing is I will only work on something where I feel a deep sense of mission, where the the purpose and the success of the team is is much bigger than ourselves and and can impact, you know, entire countries and, and millions and millions of folks. The second thing is that I think my superpower uh, as an individual is learning. Uh, I, I'm a pretty smart guy, but I'm not the smartest but I would put my ability to learn quickly uh, up there with, with anyone. And that's because I'm not afraid to look dumb or to ask questions if I don't understand something or somebody's using jargon. And, uh, and I just love this culture of like humility and perpetual learning where we don't have all the answers, but if we are open-minded enough to recognize patterns and to ask questions and to use data, man, you can build something special. And the third thing is that I'm just super stubborn that uh, once I, in ranger school, you know, taught, taught me this, that, uh, once you commit yourself to something, if it's worthy of solving and of your time, then you don't stop until it's done. So, okay. Let's dive into that a bit more. I'm guessing you, did you learn the, the value of being focused on a mission and committed to a mission from being in 
an army ranger? I do think that is what slammed it home, if you will. Uh, we don't okay. have many rites of passage in our society today, like tribal rites of passage. And then that's what ranger school was for me. I came from, you know, a family of soldiers as third generation. So for me going there, if I didn't come out with my ranger tab, you know, would have been hard to go home uh, and look at folks around the dinner table. But also I think credibility is so important for leadership. And at 22 years old, you know, when you, when you know that you're going to stand in front of an infantry platoon of like 45 guys, most of whom are older than you, and you're going to lead them. If you show up without your ranger tab, I mean, I'm like, how, how can mm. I look these guys in the eye and ask them to trust me with their lives? And so, so that was this like formative experience that I think helped deeply set habits. And then the habits that I took from that I've built upon and cultivated throughout the rest of my life. And then when it comes to learning, do you feel like you possess something that is, uh, when it comes to learning, that is maybe a stronger talent than most people do? I think I am, I'm good at applied math. Uh, okay. I was never good at more of the abstract stuff, but it could always do math like quickly. And so that's a different way of saying I'm, I'm very analytical. Okay. And when I do something, I really look at it as like a science experiment. And you know, in the military, we have these mechanisms after action reviews that after every mission, we talk about, well, what went really well? Like, how do we make sure that we keep doing those things? And then what went poorly? You know, and where did things kind of go off the tracks? And like, yeah. well, what could we do better as a team, you know, both individuals and in terms of the, the process of the way that we approach that problem next time where we might be able to, to have a better outcome? And I think I think those formal mechanisms, along with uh, just my analytical nature of, um, of of wanting to codify truth, those two can be really powerful over time in terms of moving the needle. And then uh, I love building and leading high-performing teams and uh, and only making sure that there are folks in my team that I would follow. Because uh, if you have great managers, you're learning um, and you got a mission that's worth solving. I mean, it's, it's really hard to screw up if, if those are the ingredients that you're using to cook something up. So did you ever think you would build a company this large? Is this something like <laughs> you had in the back of your mind, oh, I'd like to do that someday? Or is it something where because you had those skills, you applied them in the right niche and then things happened and you rolled with it? You know, I I was definitely always ambitious. I, I didn't know that uh I didn't know that this particular thing would would uh be worth, you know, what it is now, billions of dollars and and that the market would be as as big as it was. But I, th I think I saw that like a year or two into my entrepreneurial journey, like that we were initially solving a problem for military families to help them access benefits. And then we had all these customers say like, hey, you know, this, this problem isn't just about verifying military online. We need help verifying students and nurses and teachers and employees and senior citizens. Everybody then, needs help with this. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, and then the White House, you know, came out with a strategy and said, hey, like, why are we making Americans create logins at all these different government agencies and we're paying credit bureaus every single time? Why don't we just verify them once and let them take their identity with them? And and that was the moment, like in 2011, when a year into this, I'm like, well, that's that's the feedback I'm getting that, that that's what military folks need. They need a digital wallet where they can prove who they are and then have this like PayPal experience across websites. And, and man, if we could do that for the government and for your legal identity. And, and that's when I was like, holy cow, like this goes way beyond one community uh, and is really about building the identity layer of the internet. Yeah. And, and taking friction out of everyone's lives. 
by getting rid of password management and having to reprove who you are and yeah. empowering consumers to control their own information. Once I saw that that was what it was, now I'm like, if this thing isn't worth over a hundred billion dollars, I will have really screwed uh, up my uh, my job as, as CEO here. Well, it's really such a, a huge need because even like myself, I had a credit card charge that I thought was fraudulent, so fraudulent, and so I called it in, and then uh, actually turned out not being fraudulent. They just had a different name for the company, like there was a completely different niche. <laughs> so they had multiple companies under one name, which was silly. But anyway, so then I had to. I'm abroad. I'm in Europe. And so I had to, you know, I froze my card. They had to send me a new one. They couldn't send it. Then they needed verification to send it overseas, you know, and it's just all this back and forth. Take a picture of your ID, you know, the back of your ID, then you're, you know, they need this and a passport and address. And, and it's a, it's a Royal pain in the ass, like to, mm -hmm. to get verified online. And I think it's just such a huge need. So I do right. want to dive more into the nuts and bolts of this, but I want to kind of rewind a bit and talk more about your day as a ranger. I think you saw on the podcast, we talk a lot to either Navy SEALs or high-performance athletes and about the mindset because there's so much overlap there. And I could imagine you said you love building high-performance teams. A lot of that came from being an Army Ranger as well. I'd like to, to dive into you know your part of your time as a Ranger. You were hunting down a network, uh, the bomb network for Al-Qaeda. And I want to ask you about this specifically. My grandpa was one of the three units that was assigned to in World War II to go disarm the atom bomb. And mm. so he studied this while he was in the, the, the military as well. And so it reminds me of the movie Hurt Locker. You know, I'm, I guess a lot of people say, oh, were you guy, were like the guy in the Hurt Locker? What, what was that about? Is that something that you fell into? Or is that, you know, did you feel certain calling to do that? Yeah, I would say you know, the Hurt Locker is an interesting movie. That scene with the cereal where he comes back and is like trying to make a decision about which cereal to buy. That's that's the most true and real moment uh, mm. in that in that movie, which, you know, which is part of why I became an entrepreneur, because it, it puts lightning in your bones uh, when you're when you're in combat. But so I, I led a reconnaissance platoon. I had um, the battalion scouts and snipers and and we trained, you know, for precision engagement and reconnaissance and surveillance, things that, that recon platoons do. Uh, but what was different was when we went over uh, to combat, I, I served in Iraq uh, from September of, uh, or I'm sorry, from June of 2006 until September of 2007. We got over to Mosul and uh, some three-letter agencies came in and said, hey, look, forget everything that you guys have learned about reconnaissance and precision engagement. We're going to give you signal intelligence equipment and you're going to be running these kill capture missions against uh, high-value targets. And so uh, we spent uh, six months in Mosul, uh, in northern Iraq, and then went down and did missions and raids in uh, Lake Tartar, the outskirts of Fallujah, every neighborhood in Baghdad, uh, and then Karbala for a few weeks as well. So got to see kind of all the uh, the worst uh, spots of, of Iraq, so to speak, when it comes to uh, dangerous neighborhoods in combat. Towards the end of that tour in like July, August of 2007, there was a vehicle bomb network in Baghdad, the South Kark vehicle bomb network that was killing a thousand uh, people per month. And they'd been doing wow. that for several years. And so, so we had, uh, we, we had operators from uh, Task Force Night that came to us and said, look, like we are having difficulty catching these guys at night. We had 
uh, built a reputation for developing some innovative tactics and techniques for daylight targeting. And they said, look, if we embed our operators with you, you know, would you target this network? And over the next two weeks, we caught nine of the top 10 and that network eliminated the wow. entire level of hierarchy beneath them. And that network ceased to exist. And it wow. was one of the, the last things that we did as a unit before we came back. And I knew that Iraq was screwed. I think all my guys knew there was no strategy there, but that was a moment that we all shared, you know, when I told them, you'll never see the faces of the people that you save from the car bombs that never went off, but you can just look at, you know, month in, month out, these guys the were numbers. killing thousands of folks a month and you wow. saved thousands of lives with what we've done together as this group of, you know, roughly 30 guys. Um, so I'm super proud of them. And I hope that's yeah. something they can tell their grandparents, their grandkids about, you know, as they get older. That's incredible. And were they killing, I mean, they were killing anybody, just civilians, any, there was... Yeah, it was awful. It was just civil war um, that uh, you had um, at the beginning, at the beginning of the war, uh, Baghdad was a mixed city. You had a mix of Sunni and, and Shia. Right. Um, and that, that was 2003. By 2007, uh, the Shia are the more populous group. And uh, there was just uh, sectarian warfare going on where you had these Shia death squads going door to door. Al-Qaeda's strategy for the Sunnis was, hey, to fight back against these uh, these uh, Shia militants, we'll just put car bombs into markets that are in predominantly Shia neighborhoods. I mean, it's like, you listen mm -hmm. to that, like, what kind of strategy is that? And all it did was just, you know, result in some awful suffering. So so it's pretty crazy. If you, if you looked at a demographic map of Baghdad in 2007, it was all Shia except for some Sunni pockets in the western part of Baghdad, some central areas. Uh, and we were basically like right in the middle of that civil war as, as literally the sectarian lines of violence would shift, you know, block by block through the city. Yeah. Every day. And in many ways, Americans were kind of the third wheel. Like they would both try to kill us opportunistically, but we were really just witnessing the civil war unfold kind of right in front of us. So it was um, an awful thing that I, I never hoped to feel that energy again of like a city where you literally have, you know, um, countrymen against countrymen. I don't even know how to describe it, but um, but that's the context that that we were in at, at that period of time. Wow. It's, it's so you can't even imagine what it was like. I, I, I suppose. What did, what did they do with those guys? Well, when you guys caught them, do they kill them? Do they lock them up? What are they? No, I mean, I think that's, um, that's probably the, the most depressing thing about the whole war is that, uh, you know, ISIS formed in our prisons in Camp Buka. Uh -huh. uh, the Guardian's done a lot of reporting on this, like Baghdadi who became the Emir of ISIS was a prisoner and that's where he formed his chain of command. We, we let them all go. We, oh, wow. you know, our, our prisons turned Al Qaeda into ISIS. And so watching like the Kurds run up Sinjar mountain, like later on, it was just devastating. So they're like the day after my, like half my platoon was decorated for this firefight we got into in Mosul where mm -hmm. there were several hundred Al Qaeda militants that were hitting bases around the city. I was the only American patrol out in Mosul, a city of 2 million people. I had 24 guys with me, 16 that could go on the ground, you know, after you get rid of the vehicle crews. And, you know, we got in this crazy firefight. We stopped this mortar cell that was like dropping these, um, these huge shells, 120 millimeter shells in a combat support hospital, killed, killed some wounded, a whole bunch more, took some prisoner. And the next, and we had no close air support. Uh, we mm -hmm. fought, you know, for for hours with no close air support. 
And the next day I'm talking to this lawyer and he he looks at me and he goes, he goes, these guys you brought back. He goes, why didn't you kill them? <laughs> I almost like joked him. I was like, are you serious? I was like, did you see the like Star Wars stuff? Like on the other side of the bank, like uh-huh. me with my guys, like fighting in three different directions, you know? And he goes, sorry, I, I didn't mean any offense, but but then he like was like, look at these packets. And he's like, they just found this huge weapons cache. They they swiped the hands of the, the guys in the house next door, like 10 times the amount of like ammonium nitrate and TNT on their fingers. Right. And then he, like, the Iraqi judge let him go because the weapons weren't on their property. <laughs> it was like, oh my goodness. Like one of the guys we caught in this vehicle bomb network had been in a complex attack on an American patrol, AK-47s, IEDs. They literally caught him with the gun in his hands he spent one year at Camp Buka and then was released wow. and was immediately part of this vehicle bomb network that was killing all these civilians. So that that to me is a big part of why I left the military, that uh, I would estimate about a third of the high value targets that I risked my life and my men's life to capture or kill had already been captured and released. Yeah. And that was just insane to me on so many levels that uh, it's we, we lost the war in many ways in our legal system and in our prisons. Yeah. Oh, man. So how long was it after that that you did leave the army? Well, so when when I I knew I was coming back, I told my you know battalion commander, you know, that I was going to leave the military. He had some colorful language for me. This is like 2007. <laughs> <laughs> he said, he said, hey, you know, effort like uh, he's like, well, he goes, if you're going to apply to business school, um, you're going to apply to Harvard. And I was like, sir, I was like, I haven't used a three word <laughs> in the last like month, you know, like yeah. I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, I'm not going to write you a letter of recommendation unless you apply to Harvard. And wow. so he's like a second dad to me. I wrote, you know, the application. He wrote the letter. I got in and it really changed the arc of my life. So I went to Harvard Business School from uh, 2008 to 2010. I was still in the reserves at that time and uh, supporting European command, which is interesting because that's that's when like uh, the Russians first, you know, annexed parts of Georgia and went into right. South Asia and Abkhazia. But yeah, that's that's when I you know figured out like I want to build something meaningful where all the hard work and the sacrifice and the intellect that goes into solving these problems that it solves something permanently and not in a way that's that's wasteful. And in that sense, I, there are a lot of parallels between like Iraq and uh, failed you know, venture capital where there's a ton of capital poured into these businesses, like sometimes billions of dollars, like at Webvan or even Living Social here in DC. And people work really hard and then it all goes down to zero. Yeah. And it's not just that you wasted a billion dollars, that you just wasted all these talented people's time and I resolved that if I ever had the wheel, so to speak, at the strategic level, I would never waste anyone's time. And that uh, far from it, I would build something that would make everyone's life better in a way that that our employees would benefit from as equity holders and that we'd have a positive impact on the world that would be lasting. But that, you know, in many ways is is built on what was not happening in terms of our military strategy and our foreign policy. Yeah. What do you think it comes down to with those other companies versus the successful companies? Is it is it just money mismanagement? I know there's so many moving parts, but can you see one over, overlapping theme amongst the successful versus the the failed companies? The the biggest one is they they don't validate their unit economics, you know. And and um, Steve Blank uh, was one of the formative like writers that I read a lot when I was 
starting out. So he has this book called Four Steps to the Epiphany. Okay. And he literally lays out the stages of company building, you know, as the scientific method. And I, I think he nails it. So there's four stages that the first one is like, you know, come up with a, a hypothesis that like, this is a problem and you've got the solution for it. Then you validate the hypothesis by getting someone to pay for it. Where big companies like Living Social uh, fall down is on step three and a lot of VCs too, which is you have to validate that you can get to enough of these customers and that you get paid more than it costs to acquire them. And the problem with living social on both the consumer side and the merchant side is that when you're reaching saturation and like your distribution is tied to email, the churn, you know, that same percentage of churn just to replace the number of folks in your email list at a certain level of scale requires massive amounts of capital. And at the same time, getting merchants to do these deals that have like questionable ROI gets harder and harder and harder. And so when the unit economics don't scale uh, to build a lasting business, you can destroy you know, a ton of investor capital. And, um, and so if you do have good unit economics, then, then you can build a company that lasts. And, and I think that's why what Groupon did was interesting. They pivoted to e-commerce, which is a sustainable business model. You know, they took a write down from like a $20 billion valuation to 6 billion, but Groupon's still, you know, chugging along right now because they solved step three, which is that you can earn more from your customers than you pay to like acquire and serve them. Mm-hmm. So, it sounds simple, but when when folks have given you that much money and they expect like a certain return on it, and you have to come back into a board meeting and say, hey, this actually isn't going to work and we would fail if we continue down this path. And so we need to pivot to this other thing that's going to make us like a third as valuable as we were, you know, today, tomorrow, but it's the right move for the company. That takes courage. And there's not, there are some founders who just, you know, can't ever have that. And unfortunately, if if the board doesn't intervene quickly enough, then the company can literally go to zero and thousands of people who worked in it see really like nothing for their efforts. And that's, um, yeah. it's a great cautionary tale every time you see it happen. So what year did you guys start ID.me? I started in 2010. Uh, I just graduated um, from Harvard Business School. I, uh, I had spent a summer at McKinsey, like Love the people there, but I I knew that I knew that consulting wasn't for me. There was actually a Wednesday where I looked at another guy. Uh, he'd also uh, was a ranger, served in like two seven five, and uh, and I was like, dude, like you know, eighteen months ago, I was leading a task force like hunting this vehicle bomb network. I was like, I don't. I'm looking at the six Excel spreadsheet at seven o'clock. I was like, I don't think I could do this. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so uh, so they were wonderful, you know, about that, but. Um, I asked my rugby buddy if uh, if I could stay on his couch for a while, Kevin O'Boyle. I ended up staying on the couch in his living room for like seven months, which is way longer than both he and I anticipated he would be there or I would be there. Um, and then Tanel Sirhans, our, uh, our co-founder and CTO, was over in Estonia at the time. And so I had conversations with myself that were very similar to what I had with myself in ranger school where i was like good job blake like you just graduated from harvard business school uh you have no business experience other than people shooting at you you're not technical and you started a technology company yeah yeah right <laughs> yeah. What? like what's wrong with you and so you know it's obviously worked out now but i had this like naivety that if i could build a team that performed at the level that we did in iraq under such high pressure that certainly without people shooting at me, I could do the same thing. But I really, 
I really underestimated like the thing that the military gives you, which is like a pre-built team and yeah. almost like limited resources. And like, you have a clearly defined mission that you're solving and needed to do a lot of that by myself and with Tanel, uh, just the two of us. And man, that was still is the most difficult mountain that I've had to climb in my life over the, the next two years. The other thing too, in the military, people are, you, you know, more or less they follow orders, you know, in, in building a business, they don't necessarily always follow orders. Even if you tell them what to do, your employees, sometimes they, they still like wander off on their own and try to do their own thing. Like there's no little accountability there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's why I loved recon. Uh, it, it really is this uh, entrepreneurial part of the military where you're not part of this like central command and control. It's, it's like, Hey, here's, here's where, you know, we think the enemy is laid out. This is what the commander needs to know. And then you just have your guys that you go off and you, you plan a mission with and you execute it. There's very little oversight. There's tremendous trust. Yeah. And certainly with what we were asked to do in Iraq, I mean, we hadn't trained for that at all. And it was all new and it was learning in combat. And so if you think about entrepreneurship, like you've got a team that has like an ambiguous mission and oh crap, like the mission just completely changed. And here's all these new systems that you're given that you have no training to use and figure it out. I mean, that, that was really my introduction to entrepreneurship. And I'm very grateful because most of the military is not like that, but that was like the the foundational early experience that I had in, in my professional career. I, I was going to ask you, you did you mention one of the the founders or one of the people on the first part of your team? Are they from Estonia or visiting Estonia? Yeah, or? they're from Estonia, from Tallinn. Okay, yeah. So you know, I'm I'm uh, I've lived abroad for years, and I know people from Estonia and people that have businesses in Estonia. Was part of this inspired by kind of? what they do in Estonia. I know you said, you know, getting digitally identified on or verified um, for military yeah. people and common folks is very hard. But like, you know, I don't know if the listeners know this, but in Estonia right now, they're very technologically advanced when it comes to they're even voting through their computers. You know, they have a thumbprint little device where you can certify yourself, you know, take your fingerprint, then vote. Businesses are set up for online entrepreneurs over there. They have e-visas, electronic visas for people. They have all these cool things that are going on. It was part of like what came out of ID.me from some of those ideas that were coming from Estonia. You know, for sure, I know for Tanel, absolutely, it was a foundational influence that he's seen the architecture of like what digital identity looks like when it's delivered correctly. And you know, this this country of like 1.3 million folks in uh, in northeastern Europe has really like nailed it. I think Tanel would would say that he underestimated the complexities of digital identity in a country as like diverse as the United States of America, and and just yeah. how you know, but. Absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the most serendipitous things is that sometimes you just need a little bit of luck. And the fact that, you know, the technical co-founder who's been like the best partner that anyone could ask for also happened to grow up in a country where digital identity had been built the right way and, and provided a blueprint is kind of amazing the way that that worked out. I mean, if you just look at the odds of like, if your co-founder were to come from Europe, what are the odds? It would be Estonia, like pretty yeah. low. So that's been wonderful. And I mean, today we have like almost a hundred million users now and yeah. over, uh, over 30 million of them are verified at the level that the government accepts as legal proof wow. that you're, that you're you here in the United States. So in terms of scale, we are way bigger than Estonia is. I mean, almost a hundred times bigger by user population and, and 30 times, you know, by verified identities. 
and approaching like the scale of a country like France, you know, yeah. uh, with, with almost 40 million people in terms of the scale that we've reached here. So, uh, so I'm really proud of him and that he's taken that and in some ways has now surpassed by most metrics, you know, the capabilities of, of what he's, he saw around him growing up. Yeah, that's incredible. If we were going to break the growth of the company down into chapters, how would you break that down? Say chapter, what, what would chapter one be? Chapter one would be uh, serving, you know, military families, like what, what I would call the, the market wedge that you need to get into uh, building a great company. Chapter two would be like expanding that wedge. Chapter three would be making identity portable to like the government. Yeah. Chapter four is like giving everyone a digital wallet where you can take your identity with you, just like you do with your physical wallet, like no more passwords, no more having to prove who you are. You have full control over your data. It's never shared without your consent. And what that means there is we just, we take friction out of your lives, you know, and if you can imagine like paying with cash um, everywhere you went, that's pretty much what we're doing online when we have to create new logins and fill out these forms and everything else. Okay. Um, in our world, we'll make it work like Visa, where like you can establish trust and access services, you know, in seconds and um, you control your data. We sell trust and convenience. And that's, that's what it is. So I'm happy to go back, but um, you know, I think uh, Paul Graham at Y Combinator has this quote that it's, it's better to, to, to start a company that a few people care about very deeply than mm-hmm. a lot of people care about um, just a little and I think that that's right. Like if you look at, I mean, Facebook, right? Started as like a hot or not for Harvard University. And then, <laughs> exactly. And then it was social network just for the Ivy Leagues and then just for students and now has over a billion users. So I, I love it. 3.5 billion. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder how many of them are like scam artists, like the ones that uh, hit your credit card. But Just uh, 1 billion, just 1 billion. <laughs> <laughs> Still pretty good um, yeah. even there. So that, you know, figuring out like that, that unique wedge where you're almost like weirdly specific about who you're serving and that if you serve them well, you then earn the right to serve a broader audience. And then, you know, I, I think all great entrepreneurs have some version of that where like Jeff Bezos, you know, initially started a bookstore and he was like, well, I'm, I'm going to kill Barnes and Noble first. And that's going to take two or three years. And then you know, if, if I do that well, then I can do this. And th- there's like 17 leaps before he's buying Whole Foods and, you know, Amazon Prime's like competing with Netflix and stuff like that. But like, you just pick the problem that you're solving at that moment in time, do it well. And if you can kind of see how they all connect together, that you can build this platform that is much bigger than the, uh, the, the each component of its parts, like the sum is literally greater than, than, than the parts, then I think that's what great founders do is they they're able to see the strategy of how it all ties together when it's done. I think most billion plus dollar companies, you know, from what I've seen have have just started out as, you know, I don't think they ever were like we really want to be a billion dollar company, the founders. They were like let's just like you, like let's serve this niche and let's do it well. And yeah. you know, like back going back to Bezos, let's, you know, be the best online bookstore that's out there and see if we can't you know, crush the competition of in-person bookstores. And they have, it's a little sad because I like bookstores, but you go into a Barnes and Noble these days or, or, um, 
any of the other ones and they're kind of like there's a few people in there there's not a lot going on it looks like it's just but it looked like blockbuster you know in their Uh, final years of operation you're just like oh no yeah so sad and i love blockbuster too i mean going there when the release came out like none of the movies are there but i mean it's yeah you know it's it's like a relic of a bygone era as we're getting older it really is and it and it leaves the question to you know what uh as we grow as we grow so rapidly as as human population evolves so rapidly technology wise like what what are some of the things in the future that you either see or needed or or might might come out that'll be like significant changes like you know from amazon to going to online blockbuster to netflix these sort of things well i can talk about what i know which is identity and and i'm so passionate about identity because identity underpins you know literally everything i mean right. you know, you ever left your kids at home with a nanny for the first time like hopefully you did like a criminal background check and a credit check but you know, trust is earned over, over time. And, you know, we, we have this wonderful nanny who's been with us for like five years. She's like part of our family now that, that helps my wife and I raise our, our three kids. But, but then, but then the identity, like you then have that trust, but it's locked inside of like a unit. And so the question is like, how do you unlock it and democratize it? So like, I know that my nanny's trustworthy. My wife knows that if she went to care.com, how would the world know that, that right. like, how do we confer that? And, and that's really kind of what IDME does. And, and the purpose of identity is to help you say like, hey, I'm trustworthy. Like if I'm on eBay, I'm a, I'm a trustworthy seller or if I'm on Venmo or whatever, like, you know, I'm not going to scam you like, like is happening on Zelle. And so when you think about where identity could be applied, I love this notion of like adding verified identity to social media so that you can just get rid of bot traffic, that you could have verified accounts um, but without uploading your social security number or your ID card to Facebook or to Twitter directly, that you just have a third-party utility that says like, hey, we'll verify that Chris is Chris and you can get a blue check mark on Twitter. We might've collected some sensitive information to verify that you are in fact, you know, Chris Reynolds and that you're the host of the Business Method podcast and things like that. But as, but as far as all the things that only Twitter would need to know is they just need to know that that's your name and that you're a human. And when they do that, like the algorithms can strip out the bot traffic. When I look at like healthcare, there are one out of five hospital CIOs, and these are the ones that admit to it uh, from this Pew survey that was done a few years ago. They attribute at least one serious case of of patient harm or death to patient matching errors, uh, which are identity problems. Wow. And I'm like, oh my God. So you know, and, and, and this is where like you have this tension of HIPAA and, and everything else makes healthcare records and some places harder to get to, but there's also this standardization problem where different hospitals collect different data elements and they, they don't uh, really share all that well. And so, and you also have registrars, which are the lowest paid people in the hospital that are transcribing that dang clipper that you oh, wow. And it actually results in harm uh, in our healthcare system. And so I'm like, holy cow, well, maybe if you just empowered the user to have like a digital copy of their driver's license and who they are, and if they could just permission that to the healthcare clinic, and if that would both save them time on check-in where you don't have to fill out that clipper and produce all these credentials, but also once the data hits the system, uh, it's entered correctly, right. that actually would like reduce instances of harm. I think as the metaverse comes online, 
And, and I'm fascinated by this notion of verified attributes for, for our discourse too, that, you know, the comment section of, of articles is always just like a disaster uh, in terms of like being toxic and everything else. But, you know, what if, what if somebody could comment on an article and say, like, I'm actually an active duty service member, you know, that's, um, that's serving in Iraq. And here's like my opinion about it with, with their name masked, right? So they could right. say, and maybe doctors who are verified could comment on healthcare articles and say, like, this is what I think about Medicare Advantage or, you know, various programs. And you could filter the comments by expert commentary, folks who really uh, are credible and have a voice that's worth listening to. I think that would be phenomenal. And, yeah. and that's all made possible through digital identity and empowering people to control various credentials and say, hey, I, I want to be pseudonymous in terms of who I am. Like maybe I'm an accountant at Enron. Yeah. And so you can see that I'm an employee at Enron, but you're not actually going to see my true identity as I'm talking about these practices that that aren't right, that are misleading investors and things like that. So, so I think that to the extent that we succeed in digital identity and why it's so important, it's going to influence everything from the metaverse to social media to, you know, checking into a hotel in a way that makes your life better and ultimately gets more of these trolls uh, out of our online conversations. Yeah, I like that a lot. That way, you know, if you're talking to somebody verified or a flat earther, you know, or reading a review from somebody that just has absolutely no idea what they're talking about, which is yeah. a, a lot of people, you know, a lot of the, the things that are out there, the reviews that are out there. What about the, so, so you went from, as an army ranger leading a, do you say a team of 24 people? Was that right? My platoon was 32, 32. but okay. generally when we went on patrols, we usually have 24 because some guys were, you know, in rest days and just giving them a little bit of a break. Um, yeah. I yeah. think as I've interviewed, you know, entrepreneurs in all ranges, I think for the, the, the entrepreneurs that have even six and seven figure businesses, the idea of having a thousand employees seems uh, <laughs> incredibly overwhelming. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering if you could take us through the process of you know maybe maybe your own personal mindset shifts that you've had to have through the growth of the company some some of the key ones that helped you either let go of control or uh be comfortable with having you know 10 employees to 100 employees to to 500 to 1000 employees yeah. and and what you've had to do personally to manage that I love this question because uh, it is it is the hardest problem to solve on both, I think, an intellectual and on a personal level, especially mm -hmm. when you're dealing with people that you care deeply about. And, and I think all leadership starts with caring, but it's also where I think uh, we've got a lot of it right and and I've got some some value to impart. So when I was moved up to the recon uh, platoon from the line, you know, the line, you had to like push people to do things and and tasks and it is kind of like being like a parent with like come on like clean your room and stuff like that recon was completely different and for the first time i could pick and select what whoever i wanted you know from this unit of like almost 800 guys oh wow and okay what i found in recon was you know i I'd, I'd, I'd be like hey guys like what about this and I'm like sir like we did that three days ago <laughs> okay like i will be uh -huh. Back in my office, drinking coffee, thinking about, you know, other tasks that you've already completed. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, how, how can I be worthy of leading such a group of men who are high performing, 
and competitive and intrinsically motivated, right? And once I was exposed to that, I was like, hey, why would anyone ever want to go back to, you know, a culture where people are not self-motivated and type A and like are just like chomping at the bit to be excellent and to realize their best potential. So I love that part of it. And then, but then the other part was like, well, how do I select? You know, that I I know when a guy's trying out for recon, you have you have to be able to run like six minute miles like for forever. If you, you know, if you can shoot and you're super personable and great, but if if you just are, you know, can't run and mm-hmm. you're gonna do an eight or nine minute mile, I have no use for you. And so, but beyond that, I'm like, well, how do how do I screen them? You know, how do I evaluate and know that they're gonna be a good member of the team, a good leader and everything else? And so again, back to learning, you know, what I did is I started to codify over the course of my career, like what made this particular leader really good and what made this leader like not so good, or, you know, we had to make a change. And so we, we codified a few things into that in the culture and the values of of IDME. So our first value is don't be a jerk. And what we mean by that is that if you can't control your fight or flight impulse, you're not welcome here. Um, Mm. And I don't know that the military does a good job of like reinforcing this. It is <laughs> yeah, a different, it's like a sports team. I mean, but if if you fundamentally like are just a jerk and like belittle people and um and cannot control that fight or flight, and you go into that state of mind where like we say things in relationships we don't really mean, and then when we get out of fight or flight, we're like, I'm so sorry. You want you want folks who are emotionally stable and can control that and who are just fundamentally nice. We have another value that's inspire people with your passion. And what I mean by that is I've never had a positive working experience with a pessimist ever. Like Mm. love, I love skeptics. I love critical thinkers. But if you don't have that fundamental, like glass half full can do attitude, especially in entrepreneurship where you're, the whole thing is contrarian, right? Like most people are crazy. That's never going to work. You need people who believe and are going to give everything and, and who are going to lift up the team. And, and when you have those inspiring, charismatic leaders, we all know them where it's like, has that person ever had a bad day? Like those are the best folks to work with and for, because they're, they're even, even when they're like calling it, like they see it, they're still doing it in a positive way. And so, so, so then we screen for that in our selection, you know, we'll ask folks work shack block type questions. Like, what do you want to do? you know, next in your career, the folks who talk about what they don't want to do, they're inherently pessimists. The folks who know like what they're passionate about, what they want to do are optimists. And so we have clear like rating criteria. So on and on, like always compete. We look for people who are weirdly competitive. And so if you're like nice and you can control your fight or flight, if you're super competitive, if you're an optimist, if you practice empathy, treat each customer like your favorite family member, Mm -hmm. I mean, even a question like, Tell me about the last time you did something for someone else when it benefited you nothing at all. If if you're a jerk, like you're just going to be like, uh, it, if you practice empathy and kindness in your life, you'll have all sorts of examples where you can talk about you know situations that are important to you where you've helped people who are powerless. And so screening for those values in, in a systematic way is really important. And then the other skills, Google at work has done a lot of research on this cognitive ability and skills testing. If you, if you can like figure out how quickly somebody can process information, it's almost what like the ACT and the SAT are for like college. Like this is your ability to like process information. Uh-huh. Uh, you can screen for the personality traits and the habits. And I'm a big fan of Aristotle. Like we are what we do. Excellence, therefore, is not an act, but a habit. And then if you can screen for the skills that 
they're a salesperson. Like, do they listen? Are they able to like take product expertise and like present solutions in a way that contributes value? You know, if you're, they're an engineer, how do they write code? It's probably the hardest one to do because it's decentralized. But if you can do those three buckets, you can begin to have a consistent way of, of evaluating and selecting people that are going to fit with your culture, that are going to have the right skills and that are smart enough at the level that you need for them, right? If you're going to be a software engineer, you need to be smarter in general than, than folks who might be doing more entry-level tasks that are that do not involve technical skills. And, and so, so being really deliberate about building a system around evaluating and selecting people is, is super important. And that's just the first part of it because then managing managers and like leveling that up, you'll find that even folks who are really good at a certain level, as specialization increases and as the scale increases, some people can't see the system uh, in the same way that the founder can. In, in many, many cases, sometimes the founder can't see the system, which is why the board, you know, will replace folks. And so that's, that's a transition point that, that I certainly have, have like worked my tail off to navigate but is, is like a whole separate set of challenges once you've nailed like that first set, which is like consistent way of evaluating and screening people. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk about the you getting to unicorn status when you guys raised $100 million. I think, you know, in alignment, and in, in this, this, your answer may overlap from this question from the previous question as well, but the idea of that for so many people is just seems so, so large, like so such a huge thing to do again, to manage over. And was there any hurdles for you personally that you had to go over through that growth of becoming that large of a company? And I could see that directly related, you know, kind of your answer may be related to last question, put the, the right people on the team. But I'm thinking about you personally, do you feel the weight of the company on your shoulders? Because it seems like you know, running a, a six-figure online business, there's a certain amount of weight a person would have. And then, and then I actually have a good friend who last year he hit 10 million in his company and he's in his thirties yeah. as well, feels a ton of pressure on his shoulders, you know, but then people that run, you know, multi, you know, yeah. eight, nine and billion dollar companies, they don't. Do you feel that personally? Yes. You can't, even as crazy as like the stress of like starting, you know, the, um, the company was in the early days when you hit the scale that we're at of like, you know, hundred million users and signing up 125,000 users a day and over 1000 employees. And, oh my goodness, like the stock market in the beginning of this year crashed for like 50% for all the like newly IPO tech companies. And, you know, we went from growth to efficiency mode. It, it is an unbelievable amount of stress. And, um, and I think, I think for that reason, I don't know that I've been great all the time. I was talking to, um, the CEO of a public company and, uh, and he, he said, Blake, he's like, I don't know any public company CEO that doesn't like either drink or is on Xanax. That's <laughs> 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 like, oh. Amazing. <laughs> you're like, great. That sounds like the CEOs of McDonald's. They all die before they're 55, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so I think, you know, there, there's a tendency, like, how do you cope with that? And yeah. sometimes, you know, and I've never even been a big drinker, but I think like dur during some of those moments of high anxiety, like I started to drink more often. It's, it's been taking a conscious and deliberate effort to say, Hey, you need to make that a healthy habit. And 
you know, put the treadmill in at work and walk and work out and take care of your body because that's, that's the most important thing. You know, if you want to be a good dad and a good husband and, you know, just have energy and, and, and to be a good leader because that stuff strips your productivity away. Mm. Um, so yeah, the pressure, the pressure is enormous. And, you know, I can, I can talk a little bit about some of the steps that led us to get to the heights that we're at from a strategy point of view, but man, that, I don't ever want to sugarcoat the personal cost uh, when you have all of these stakeholders and investors who've invested now hundreds of millions of dollars that want their forex return and you have your commitment to serve all the users you know in, to access vital programs you have competitors who are not playing fair and by the rules and coming after you I mean there's there's a tremendous amount to manage and it definitely has a, uh, a, a it takes a personal toll uh, in terms of the um, just the impact it has emotionally on uh, on me for sure. Well, what are some of the things you do to turn it off on a regular basis? I, I think you just have to create healthy healthy habits. So uh, so what I found is you know like put, putting in the treadmill and I've got it off right now just to like not have the background noise. But I just put a walking treadmill underneath my desk and I have a lazy workout where I'll like knock out four to six miles every day just by like you know, walking at one mile an hour on my desk. Um, while working. I take my daughter's you know, while working. Yeah. I yes. take my, cause I've got three kids. Like if I come back at the end of the day, like the, the notion that I'm going to like knock out a five mile run, like I used to, on the couch is more likely way to go. And so I think that's really been it is, is like to make sure that, you know, if, if whenever you, you want to do something that's like, an unhealthy habit. If you can substitute something that's healthy for it, like, no, I'm going to have some caffeine free tea. And like, that's what I'm going to have before I go to sleep. And I'm going to go to sleep on time and make sure that I get a decent night's rest. But you have to be like really deliberate about building those habits slowly and then sticking to them to break a bad cycle and to be self-aware to know that like you might be slipping into something that's not, that's not healthy. Do you manage your, your family time also? Are you, you, you know, stopping it, you know, in a, the same time every evening and making sure you get family time and dinner with them or what, what's your routine like? Yeah. Well, I think routine is what's critical. Like you've got to build that in. So I take, I take my oldest girl to like soccer uh, three days out of the week. So that's like our time together, like an hour and a half and I'll work out while she's practicing. And then we do rec for my six-year-old, my two-year-old uh, on Wednesdays. That's my time you know, with them. And I think having those blocks of time where you're spending dedicated time and then, you know, Fridays and stuff, I'm home and we have dinner and like we play uh, on the weekends and go to playgrounds and stuff. But I think you have to make room in your schedule to have consistent time. Uh, even before, you know, unicorn status, I would cook dinner at home, you know, two or three nights out of the week. And I would take my kids to the park. And like, that was, that was our routine at that point, whenever you lose that and like your schedule just dominates family, it's probably not going to happen or not be the the quality engagement that you want. So I can't recommend enough to like carve out, to carve out that time and make it part of your, your routine and process. So you said you're working out when your daughter's at soccer practice. I just got an image yeah. of you like running alongside the field and doing some pushups <laughs> outside and like going over to the monkey bars and doing some pull-ups. Is, is it is that type of workout that you're doing? Or it's uh no 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 it's a it's a really nice facility called the St. James in Springfield, Virginia. So it's okay. uh it's an incredible facility. So I'm I'm inside of a gym. They play like the old school hip hop, like Nelly and Warren G and stuff. So. <laughs> 
coming there, <laughs> you know, usually like uh, hit, hitting the weights and the bench, uh, bench press and free weights with a bunch of folks who now are a lot younger than me. So, ah, that's cool. That's cool. Okay. So, so, so back to some of the strategies that you were talking about. So we did talk about what was the name of the, the guy's blog that you, that you read that Steve, Steve blank, Steve blank in his book was called the enlightened. It was uh, four steps to the epiphany. The epiphany. And, okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And those are those are the strategies you applied. It was. Um, can you remind me of those? Yeah. So so there were two things. Like one, I was I called up uh, David Tish. He was the managing director of TechStars New York. Was one of our angel investors, and uh, I was called him up in like late 2010. I was giving him an update on what was going on. He's like Blake. He's like that sounds great. He goes, but that's all business development stuff. He goes, you want to build a product like company, right? He goes, yeah. you need to read this. He goes, go read Steve Blank's Four Steps to the Epiphany. It's one of the best pieces of advice that I got. And then, you know, I, I don't know, I think it was like late 2011 as, as we were getting feedback about, you know, hey, your destination website, like not really interested because you don't have any users, but we have this problem with verifying, you know, military and employees and students and the federal government came out and they said uh, the, these customers, like from huge, huge Fortune 500s, were like, if you could build a way to for us to verify who somebody is, like on our website and not on yours, we would buy that. And I, I went to uh, Andy Dunn, who is the founder of Bonobos, was one of our early investors as well through this group called Red Swan. And he invited me up to his apartment in New York City. So I took the train up from DC. And it was just this unbelievable night where uh, Andy Ratcliffe, who's a Hall of Fame venture capitalist from Benchmark, was there. He was the founder of Wealthfront. Mm-hmm. So he was giving this presentation on Wealthfront. The founders of Venmo were there. The founders of Warby Parker were there. My buddy Andy Dunn, you know, it's a good is there. room to be in. <laughs> incredible room. Yeah. And then yeah. here's me who like, you know, hasn't made it at all, but like looking at this collection of rock stars. And so that night I was in conversation with one of the founders of, of Warby Parker. And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, how much capital have you raised? And I said, uh, you know, just under 3 million. And he goes, Hmm. He goes, don't F it up. Big stigma. <laughs> and so, <laughs> was like, Thanks. Thanks coach. <laughs> Great advice. <laughs> but that was, I love that like brutal honesty because mm-hmm. I, kn- I already knew what I needed to do as a leader, which is like, listen to the customer feedback and forget this like website and build like PayPal for identity. That's what the market wanted. But there's so much inertia and like the whole business plan, everything you've talked to the board and how you've hired early employees is about, we're going to do X, Y, Z. And this was, this was a complete pivot to say, no, we're not going to be a website or an app. We're actually going to be a distributed utility. The go-to-market, the growth strategy is going to be completely different because that's what the market is telling us the actual need is for. And that's what folks will pay for. Yeah. And so like I, I did that the very next week. I'm like, well, look, if I'm if I'm going to fail, because I could see that the current strategy, like we would run out of money and we go to zero and everyone would go their different ways. But I'm like, if this is my one chance. If I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail like my way going for like what I know is the true opportunity. And, and so for the next year, we built this product that was able to like verify folks through a digital wallet on third party sites. And I still remember like we somehow closed Under Armour as like the first large customer to put us in their checkout flow. Uh, we, we had a pilot with the VA and then Telluride ski resorts, you know, randomly in like November of 2012, but it took a full year to build this. And I just remember like the, 
the day before we went live with Under Armour, like I literally wanted to be sick because if that didn't work, it was over. And it did work. Thank goodness. We signed up something like 48,000 users in 45 days. The results for Under Armour, even at like minimal scale, they were like, we love it. And, and then it was on, you know, but holy cow. And I think, you know, to borrow a line from General Petraeus, like the first the first responsibility of leaders is to get the big ideas right. And I was just so grateful for the folks who give me blunt feedback that mm-hmm. ultimately gave me the courage and resolve to go for it. What do you think you would have done if that that didn't work with Under Armour? I don't know. Like, you know, there, there have been two moments. Uh, one was very early on when uh, uh, I was still like, uh, I was on my buddy's couch and Tanel was over in Estonia and it was like seven months post-graduation. I'd literally been living. I was a home, the, probably the only homeless Harvard Business School graduate in like the country, like living on my rugby buddy's couch. And we'd, we'd been pitching USAA and military.com to distribute this, you know, like military facing uh, platform and good meetings. But then I called them up in February and I was like, hey, you know, the contact at USAA, I'm like, when when would we actually do this? And they're like, well, just to set expectations, like fast for USAA is two to three years. And if we're we're lightning fast, it's like 18 months. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I was like, I'm not going to stay on this guy's couch for a year and a half just to run an experiment that might fail. And so I called Kelly Purdue's on our board. He, he was just an early mentor to me and was unbelievable. I I would not be an entrepreneur today without Kelly. And I was like, Kelly, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. And he said, first, never tell that to anyone ever again, because no one's going to write you a <laughs> right, check to like right, right. give you the bandwidth to figure it out. And then he said, two, chin up, we're going to figure this out together. And so I'm always grateful to to Kelly because, you know, I never had a similar moment like that in Ranger School. Like Ranger School was always like, I will literally die before I quit. This is one of those things where I'm like, am I just not qualified or am I off track? And Kelly like lifted me up in that moment of of really like near despair and convinced me to to go for it i i signed up i had like ten thousand dollars in the business account i had eight thousand dollars in my personal bank account i moved to dc and signed a fifty five thousand dollar rental agreement for a townhouse which is either crazy or like ultimate confidence and then we closed like a seed round of 500k uh fortunately like 60 days later and then um and then built you know the, the core of the team but if, but if after you know two years of work, if we still had not found product market fit and we didn't have enough capital in the bank to like last us more than like three or four more months, I don't know that. I think that would have been the end of the road. Yeah. Uh, to be honest. I think it's a blend of crazy and confidence too. Like you, <laughs> to to do anything entrepreneurial, you've got to have a little of both, no matter what scale. Do you feel like there's any any strategies that are really essential to build a company like you have that we haven't touched on yet? Well, I think I think self-awareness is is really critical. And uh, Brian Armstrong at Coinbase wrote a really good post about the four different types of, of CEO that um, you can have technical CEOs like Zuckerberg. Uh, you can have design and product CEOs like Brian Chesky at Airbnb. Mm-hmm. You can have operational CEOs like Travis Kalanick at Uber. And then you can have sales-oriented CEOs like Aaron Levy at Box and Mark Benioff. And you really have to be self-aware about what type you are, you have, you also have to be really self-aware to not hire a, or start a company with a co-founder who has the same skill set as yours. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of research too that HBS has done in entrepreneurship. But like if you hire or start a company with a co-founder and one's going to be CEO and the other one's not, and you have the exact same skill set, whether it's sales or operations or product and mark, you know, product and design, there will be a divorce. And those are usually the messiest divorces. Um, mm. So it's really important that the initial team has an overlapping, or I'm sorry, like a, a linking set of skills that do not overlap too much, that everyone has their own turf. And that's why like my relationship with Snell has worked very well as the technical co-founder and um, and I'm the non-technical co-founder, but technical enough that I can hang with, you know, CTOs and CIOs for hours and not need anybody to to wing me. Right. So I think I think that foundational set of advice is to like make sure that you understand that you're going to need all those skill sets if you're going to build a company that scales to make sure that you know what you are and don't hire anybody who's got the same skill set as you at, at the exact level. Yeah. That's great advice. I was thinking about that and I was wondering if my co-founder, who is very similar to me, has <laughs> too many overlapping similarities. <laughs> However, though, he's 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 a more of a minority in the company and I'm the majority. <laughs> yeah. As long as there's one clear lead dog, yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. And it does depend on the type of company, but in general, especially in tech, where it's like the road is towards specialization and yeah. one place to the top. Uh, the folks who come in as co-founders, but ultimately are not going to be equals, that always leads to to weirdness. Yeah. I read that you work till 3 a.m. quite often and sleep <laughs> five and a half hours per night. Is that true? Uh, I try to sleep a little bit more than five and a half hours. I try to get at least six hours. Um, I am definitely a night owl. I think there's something genetic that at like 10 or 11 p.m., I just catch a second wind. Yeah. You know, but yeah, if you if you left me to like my own devices with no external responsibility, I would go to sleep around three and I'd wake up around nine. Yeah. Are you familiar with the sleep chronotypes? Have you heard of those before? No, I'm not. I'd love I'd love to learn more now though. So we interviewed Dr. Michael Bruce, who's like he's been on Oprah, he's been on Dr. Oz like dozens of times, like and and he has these I think it's five different sleep chronotypes and it's really based on DNA. So a lot of times very similar to, you know, your parents or grandparents and, uh, they're, you know, different time range ranges of our sweet spots to sleep. So I think the bear chronotype is like, which is me, they go to bed between 1030 to 1130, generally Mm -hmm. get up around seven ish, you know, and then they have different times of peak and productivity throughout the day. They have the night owl, of course, that, that goes to bed very late. One of my best friends is a night owl. He'll mm-hmm. He's the most productive in the nighttime, ends up going to yeah. bed at 4 a.m., sleeps until 1. And and so it's really kind of cool to, to dissect your own sleep chronotype and then understand it a bit more because you can understand, you, you don't feel like you have to necessarily succumb to society's schedule or hours when you understand your sleep chronotype. And yep. one of the tests that they did was that they, for the night owls, they were trying to, to get them to start work at 8 a.m. And they were horrible employees because yeah. they were like, they were, it was completely off of their, their, their rhythms. And when they started, when for the night owls, when they had them start work 
at 9.30 or 10 a.m., their their productivity absolutely skyrocketed. I love it. Yeah, it, it's very cool to see. And it's fun to like like listen about that and understand it more because, you know, sleep's everything. But you're you're doing six hours a night. Are you taking naps in the afternoon or can you go solid with six hours? No, I'm good. As long as I get six, I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, there, there might be like on the weekends where I sleep a little bit longer to, you know, but in general, if I get if I get six, I'm, I'm good to go. Yeah. I think what you just said, though, is a big part of why I made you know, sure that, that my culture is not process-based, but results-based. Right. And, and that was just, again, from observations that, you know, the military is with the haircut and like everything else. And then you get over into like theater and you're in Iraq and you're like, well, who's that dude who looks like ZZ top. And it's like, well, that's a Delta operator. <laughs> so yeah. like, that guy's a God of war and like does nothing about these artificial conventions of yes. you know, making sure that your hair is short. And he's literally at the top of, of the, you know, the, the apex predator, if you will. Yeah. And at McKinsey, you had these partners that were debating about whether or not you could wear jeans to the office on Friday. And I'm like, oh my God, there's so much intellect in this room, like of all the problems to solve, like maybe just let that one go and let folks wear jeans and solve the (laughs) stuff that matters. Right. And and then being a night owl myself and like vibing with that, that like, yeah, don't make me come in at, like, if I'm going to do my best work at, you know, midnight or 1 a.m., let me do that company. And yeah. as long as I do my work, great. If yeah. I roll in at 10 or 11 AM or noon, but I just rock this like, you know, piece of content or whatever it is that I'm responsible for. And, and that's awesome. Then judge me by my results and not based on like forcing different sleep chronotypes into the same pattern. So that's always the way that I wanted to be led, which is like, let high performers manage themselves, hold them accountable for results just get out of their way um, yeah. as long as they're a good teammate and like they're they're you know working cross-functionally let them figure out their schedules and great stuff follows when you let high performers kind of you know choose their own adventure so to speak 100 percent. so six hours of sleep a night and then are you are you drinking coffee throughout the day yeah i drink like one coffee uh in the morning like usually so i don't drink like an excessive okay. amount and then uh yeah i'll usually take a little like pre pre-workout thing before I work out around like five or 6 PM weights. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Weights so in get, the gym. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. I get cardio in like during my workout or if I do cardio, I try to do that when I first wake up. And I think there's a lot of research there too, that shows that if you can do the cardio, it's where you burn the most fat because you, your body's been fasting. And then when my circadian rhythm is like lowest, like towards dusk, I'll take that little pre-workout, not a ton, but just a little bit enough to like juice me up going into the, uh, the workout. That's, and that's pretty much it, you know, until, uh, put the kids down for bed around like eight, eight thirty. have a little bit of time uh, to hang out with the wife. And then, and then usually like she goes to sleep and I'm like, okay, like it's, it's on. And then I'm, I'm working. What type of diet do you keep? Uh, right now I'm eating a ton of fish, like sushi and stuff. With three little ones, I try to avoid mac and cheese as much as I can. <laughs> be like ever present, but uh, uh-huh. no, I'm pretty. I'm pretty good. Like I, uh, I usually have. I mean, like a like a. I'm not a big breakfast person. Maybe like a muffin or something when I wake up. I'll have sushi for lunch uh, almost every day. I'll just walk across and get that. And then um, for dinner, we'll do like salmon or chicken or stuff like that. So I have a pretty healthy diet. I think avoiding unhealthy snacks is like the biggest thing, especially with kids. So like trying to stay away from carbs, which again, like, um, I, I do have, I do a fair job of, although I have my cheat moments. So. Yeah, we all do, you know, <laughs> yeah. even the best of the best. Yeah. Um, 
I think we're going to wrap it up here, Blake. That was, that's, it's been a great podcast and I really appreciate you sharing all the information and, and your stories and, and I've enjoyed your, your stories as a time as a um, army ranger and some of the, the stuff you shared there and then how it incorporates and into your mindset with business and building teams. Like it's absolutely phenomenal. I'm super, super excited in my own personal life to, to grow my own high performance team in the, you know, as I grow as an entrepreneur, but I think like even me, and I've seen this amongst other entrepreneurs, like it's, it's challenging at, at times to like, oh, I've got to lead this person who I think is maybe more of an impressive individual than myself, you know, in, yeah. in many different ways, but you got to get out of your own way and your own shit, you know, just to let that happen. Yeah. Well, and I think if you have a mission that's worthy of following, that's a huge part of it. Uh, yeah. That's part, that's part of what you're selling. And then Every leader has to figure out what they are bringing to the table that makes them uniquely credible. It's true at every stage and scale of the business. So, you know, as the go-to-market like founder, I had to close like the earliest sales and then to to build that. So Under Armour and then, you know, Fanatics and with our, and then by that team, we had A's like Spence, because I want to take credit for that. Spence closed that and then Chelsea closed. And to show that you can build a team that can, close those accounts and scale. And then when we cross verticals, the government to close them, but then to build a sales team behind that and then to layer yourself and like fire yourself from different tasks. And it really is this like ever, it's this evergreen journey of adaptation and making sure that that for what the business needs at that particular stage in time, that you're able to learn fast enough on your own personal growth curve to keep up with it. And when you have a company that, you know, goes from 15 or 16 million in revenue to like well north of a hundred million in just a few years. Um, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's like trying to stay on the bull for eight seconds, uh, so to speak, but more than eight, yeah, more than eight. <laughs> but I think generally like folks, who know what they're really good at and they have the humility to know what they're bad at and, and hire leaders that complement them in those spaces. You can, you can build something special where everyone has that sense of imposter syndrome because anyone who's really good knows how bad they are at things that they're not good at. And that builds like this immense sense of gratitude and respect when you're able to work with people who uh, together, like form a, a balanced and, and comprehensive team. And so uh, I take a lot of pride and satisfaction in forming organizations that, that work like that and empowering, empowering people who are worthy of trust yeah. to happen. You have to avoid abdication, never empower people who are not worthy of trust. And I like, like that. I like that part. a lot. Yeah. yeah. That's a good standard rule. Empower people and employ people that are worthy of your trust. All right, man, this has been great. If the listeners want to reach out or learn more about IDME or what you guys have going on, what's where's the best place they can do that at? Yeah, sure. So you can uh, find me on Twitter at Blake underscore Hall uh, is my Twitter handle. You can find me on LinkedIn too uh, through a pretty quick search there. And if you want to shoot me an email, it's just Blake at ID.me. Um, so Always love uh, feedback of all kinds, uh, especially critical feedback, because it means that folks care. And I'm always happy to help any entrepreneur who's, who's first finding their way because the first two years, uh, if I didn't have people who are outside the company to help me, there's there's no way that I would be on this podcast right now talking to you, Chris. Is it your advice going to be, hey, don't, don't F it up? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that literally is what every boss I've had, you know, <laughs> you know, not too many stages in the career in terms of jobs, but that's what my first boss in the military told me on my first mission. And 
the Warby Parker guy as well. So it seems to be thematic that if you can uh, not screw it up, that uh, that you're going to be okay. Yeah, if, if it's working for you, don't don't fix it like it's working so far. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, Blake, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you having on the show, having you on the show. And listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again. And we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.